Thanks for tuning in. I'm Michael Watson, and this is the Influence Watch podcast. In this episode, the Women's March faces new accusations of anti-Semitism among its leadership. New Jersey Democrats prepare to institutionally gerrymander the state so obviously that even National Democrats are embarrassed by them. And major election fraud allegations hit the Chicago City Alderman's District with the legislator some have called Illinois' state dictator lives. This week, Jewish news magazine The Tablet released a 10,000-word bombshell investigation into the leadership struggles and bizarre financial arrangements which have come to define the movement known as the Women's March, founded to organize major demonstrations against the incoming Trump administration shortly after the president's inauguration. In short, the apparent anti-Semitism of the controversy magnet activists, with troubling ties to anti-Jewish radicals, was part of the organized movement, existing legally as Women's March Incorporated, from its very beginning with the future co-chairs of the march allegedly spouting anti-Semitic conspiracy theories at other activists in the first organizational meeting. Seriously, go to the tablet and read the whole thing. A few highlights. Anti-Semitic comments at the initial meeting reportedly weren't a one-off. Evie Harmon, an early Women's March activist, recounted a meeting at which Tamika Mallory and Carmen Perez, two March co-chairs, allegedly berated a fellow March activist, Vanessa Rubel, who is Jewish, with anti-Semitic stereotypes. Rubel later left Women's March Incorporated, joining the rival activist group March On. The widely reported associations between the Women's March leadership and Nation of Islam leader Louis Farrakhan, described by the left-of-center Anti-Defamation League as, quote, the leading anti-Semite in America for his conspiratorial anti-Jewish speeches, Tablet alleged that members of Farrakhan's Nation of Islam, quote, were acting as security details and drivers for the co-chairs. For the record, Women's March officials denied this to the tablet. Beyond the ideological activities of the Women's March leaders, tax documents, which were revealed to media outlets in a fashion that raised suspicions, since they were passed to far-left outlet The Intercept after they had been requested by the center-left outlet Daily Beast, and then not provided to the Daily Beast for what were supposedly technology-related reasons, the returns showed close associations between the far-left group The Gathering for Justice and Women's March Incorporated. Further, a proliferation of Women's March-branded groups were generated, making tracking monetary contributions and spending by the Women's March exceptionally difficult. Uh, The Women's March was understandably unhappy that this report was being released, so they set about on a public relations damage limitation campaign. It did not go well. First, shortly before the profile dropped, American Federation of Teachers Union President Randy Weingarten appeared at a forum with Mallory and her fellow embattled Women's March co-chair Linda Sarser. I'm sure the fact that the AFT union is a financial supporter of the Women's March, to the tune of $25,000 in 2017-18, and the AFT union is a longtime supporter of groups associated with Mallory, who was executive director of Al Sharpton's National Action Network in the early 2000s, had nothing to do with the union president joining in the damage limitation effort. Uh, Whether it did or not, it's another reason to be thankful for the Janus v. Asmi decision, which allows government workers who want nothing to do with the AFT's advocacy to refuse to pay for it. Later and more prominently, a public relations flack with the firm Megaphone Strategies sent a mass demand to journalists on Twitter, demanding they retract tweets about the tablet report based on unstated evidence that the PR firm demanded stay off the record. Megaphone Strategies was founded as, quote, a social justice media strategy firm by Van Jones, a former Obama administration official now working as a CNN commentator, and Molly Hay, the former communications director for the far-left pressure group Progressive Change Campaign Committee. In addition to the Women's March, it represents a number of left-wing groups and political candidates. 
a number of journalists took note and objected to the mass demand, noting how odd it was. The demand likely backfired. A number of the journalists who were solicited shared the tablet's reporting. After publication, Tablet updated its piece, but none of the updates contradicted the initial reporting. At least one update provided a named source who confirmed part of the report. Because holding both houses of the state legislature and the governorship is simply too precarious for New Jersey Democrats, the state legislature is considering a controversial redistricting proposal, which the New York Times says would, quote, make Republicans a permanent minority by essentially writing gerrymandering into the state constitution. Basically, the move would set a formula requiring state legislative maps to favor Democrats, with limits on what the plan calls competitive, defined as within five points of the average for New Jersey Senate presidential and gubernatorial elections over the past 10 years, locking in structural Democratic advantages. The sheer brazenness of the plan has irked the National Democratic Redistricting Committee, headed by former Obama Administration Attorney General Eric Holder. It's not that Holder's team have had a sudden infusion of good government heart. The NDRC sees the New Jersey gambit as a distraction from its national campaign to restrict redistricting efforts by Republicans. The National Democratic Redistricting Committee, for its part, is a heavy-hitting litigation farm, backed by big names like Holder, which has overturned Republican-backed district maps in a number of states. It is the descendant of the National Democratic Redistricting Trust, an unlimited money committee set up by master left-wing elections lawyer Mark Elias, who is credited by the Wall Street Journal with orchestrating the controversial first first election of former Senator Al Franken in a dubious recount process. Elias and his firm Perkins Coie have raised millions from liberal donors, most prominently financier George Soros, to litigate against Republican maps, and litigation conducted by these groups have led to victories by Democrats seeking more favorable district lines in a number of states. For its part, the New Jersey plan faces two hurdles. It must be passed twice, once before the end of the year and once after the beginning of the new year, and then approved by voters. Democratic Governor Phil Murphy, who stands to lose some power over redistricting under the scheme, has expressed some skepticism of the plan. But it is the political machine of Illinois State House Speaker, election-watching website rrhelections.com has a different description of his title, Michael Madigan, who wins this week's prize for achievement in attempting to rig an election you were almost assuredly going to win anyway. You see, David Krupa, a right-wing college student, announced his candidacy and collected signatures to appear on the ballot for city alderman, equivalent to city council, in Chicago's 13th Ward the most powerful resident of which is Mike Madigan. Madigan's allies responded to this likely token. For comparison, Hillary Clinton won the 13th Ward in 2016, 70% to 25%. Challenge to incumbent Alderman Marty Quinn by collecting almost 2,800 affidavits to withdraw candidacy petition signatures. Problem? Krupa only submitted 1,703 signatures. He needs 473 valid signatures to qualify for the ballot. According to Krupa's lawyers, only 187 of the affidavits matched submitted signatures. According to a Chicago CBS station, some signers of these withdrawal affidavits claim that they were misled as to what they were signing by canvassers. Uh Uh-oh. The matter and... Alderman Quinn's as-yet-unsubstantiated claim that Krupa simply could not have obtained sufficient valid signatures will be decided by the Board of Elections over the weekend. Regardless of the outcome, this power play by Madigan's allies 
is just another illustration of the power that Speaker Madigan wields in the state of Illinois. In addition to his role as House Speaker, Madigan chairs the state's Democratic Party. This allows him to dispense patronage and penalties to his fellow legislators. Over the past four years, Madigan led a successful blockade of the reform efforts of outgoing Governor Bruce Rauner to reform the state's government, especially any changes to the government worker pensions that have been promised to Madigan's union allies. Illinois voters rewarded Madigan for his efforts by replacing Rauner with a pliable Democrat. To give an example of Madigan's machine in action, in 2016, the Speaker tried to enact a law giving more power in negotiations to his allies in the AFSME, Government Worker Union, through a process called mandatory arbitration. When a Democratic legislator voted to sustain Rauner's veto, Madigan had him ousted in a primary. That's our show for this week. If you're listening to this on YouTube, we encourage you to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you have subscribed, thank you, and please leave us a five-star rating. We'll see you next week.